All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Romans chapter 8. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we're certainly glad that you're here. And you'll find that we're continuing a trek in Romans that we, com- that we started six months ago. And that we will continue probably for another 12. But we trust that God works through his word. And so we go through his word systematically like this. And so we will pick up in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. And as you're turning there, I'm, I wonder if you've ever considered how universal the idea of family is in our world. Across time, across geography, all cultures have a concept of family. Now, their understanding of family and how we should relate to each other may vary, may differ, but the idea of family remains the same. And depending on who your family is, it determines a lot about you. It doesn't determine everything, but it determines a lot. It determines Your genetics, maybe what you look like, determines what you're exposed to, determines the values that you're going to have for the rest of your life in most cases. It shapes how you view the world. Our families determine a lot about our lives. And this is true for a spiritual reality as well. Now, I know the moment that I reference spiritual, at least in some of our brains, there's a temptation to discount it as less real. Because it's not tangible, because I can't see it, well, then it is less real and has less of an impact. But I think from our passage this morning that the spiritual reality of a family is even more determining than our physical family. We're going to look at this in a couple of different ways. But the main idea of the text this morning, and so the main idea of my sermon this morning is this. Because of the Father's love, Because of the Father's love, he adopts us into his family and makes us like him. Because of the Father's love, he adopts us into his family and makes us like him. So with that in mind, let's read our passage this morning. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's look at those first two verses, verses 12 and 13, considering death by the Spirit. So then, brothers, or brothers and sisters... Some of your English translations may have a footnote there. It says Paul is all-encompassing here. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Now, some of you who have taken financial peace in university are squirming in your seat right now thinking, I thought I was debt-free. 
But if you've been following along through our trek through Romans, your mind may be drawn back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the question begins, what does Paul mean when he says that we are debtors? Or maybe you're remembering the song Nailed to the Cross that we sing, which is based off Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. So to explain what he means by we are debtors, Paul begins by explaining how we are not debtors. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. Or in other translations, we have no obligation to the flesh. We are not indebted to the flesh, obligated to live according to it. We who are in Christ are Romans 8, 1 Christians. Romans 7 is no longer our story. The flesh is no longer our master. It does not dictate the direction of our lives. It does not dictate the direction of our feet. It does not set the course of our hearts. We are freed from the flesh because, Romans 8, 3, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, if we're not debtors to the flesh, what are we debtors to? Well, in the text, he implies that we are debtors to the Spirit. We are obligated to live in step with the Spirit. A type of debt that is radically different, a type of obligation that is radically different from our debt to the flesh. The Spirit is not a slave master like the flesh is. So our debt is different. So verse 12, Paul starts with this indicative statement, what is true about us in Christ apart from our actions. And he starts there so that we'll rightly understand verse 13. If we don't start with what's true about verse 12, then verse 13 becomes an unbearable burden. Read verse 13 with me again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will will live so verse 13 we have this conditional statement this if then if you do this this will happen now for many of us when we hear the words conditional and grace they can seem contradictory or conditional and gospel we and rightly so emphasize the unconditional love of God for his people the acceptance in the presence of God based on grace and not on merit. The idea that we are saved by grace through faith and that this is not our own doing. These are the refrains of our tongues. These are the choruses of our songs. And these are truths worth proclaiming. But we must be careful not to let the truths that we like undercut the truths that we don't. So bear with me and and see how this works out. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We've got this clear warning that Paul presents us. And this is what verse 13 is. It's simultaneously a clear warning and a great hope. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
And the word he's using here is not just a physical death, but an ultimate, eternal, end times type of death, a death that is not reversed. What Paul is doing here is he's not serving like the side effects at the end of the medication commercial, where he talks about all the pleasant things you'll enjoy about how, you know, you'll have rejuvenated energy, you won't have any pain in your arm, but, you know, weight gain, weight loss, occasional visits from door-to-door salesmen, occasional death, all of that's possible, okay? That's not what Paul's doing. He's putting the warning on the front. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. This is an echo of Genesis chapter 2, right? God has created Adam and he gives him the clear command, you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the stakes. And this is the nature of reality because this is the nature of God. God does not deal lightly with sin. God cannot sit idly by while ungodliness reigns. No, God in his holiness and justice condemns sin. He condemns ungodliness and he condemns the flesh. And so to live according with it, these are the stakes, a true and eternal, a lasting death. So we rightly promote the clear truths of the gospel, but we don't let those glorious truths of the gospel be like blinders to the seriousness of sin. But rather, we let the truths of the gospel illuminate the battlefield by which we will put sin to death. And so we have this great hope. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the outworking of our obligation to the Spirit. We, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Now, as bleak as it may appear, there's death in both directions. Do you see that? We've come to this fork in the road and the arrows pointing in either direction contain an idea of death. If we turn to the left, we live, but we will die. But if we turn to the right, we die, but we will live. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. And this is the same thing that Jesus tells his disciples. Mark chapter eight. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus tells us to pick up our cross, to not seek to save our life, but to lose our life. Well, why? Because following Jesus is dying to self. And the language doesn't get any less violent as we progress through the New Testament. We have passages like this of dying to self, killing the flesh. We have passages like Galatians 5 where Paul talks about crucifying the flesh. And all this is to point out the reality that I think John Owens in his work Mortification of Sin makes really clear. It's an exposition on verse 13 here, but he says this. Maybe you're aware of this saying. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now you may ask, why such strong language? If I'm secure in Christ, why do I need warning passages like this? 
Well, it's because the serpent in the tree is not a mute. The old man is not neutral. The cancer of sin that remains in our world and remains in our old flesh is not benign. It must be fought. And fought with vigilance and ferocity that is matching of the danger that it poses. If you're in the woods and a bear is attacking you, you better hope you don't have a Nerf gun. We want to deal with sin in the same level of the danger that it poses. So how do we do this? Well, he starts off, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Now remember, I said it was conditional. But it's not conditional in the sense that it's cause and effect, but rather that it's means to an end. Our efforts are not the cause of our holiness, but rather they are the spirit-fueled means by which God produces holiness and life within us. And remember, holiness is what we need. If we are not holy, then we don't get access to God. If we're not holy, we don't get into heaven. Holiness is what we need. And so here we see that God is working by his spirit to produce the very thing that we need to have access to him. Imagine for a moment you see a picture of a small child dunking a basketball. But then whenever you zoom out, what are you going to see? You're going to see the father propping him up and holding him to get him where he wants to be. These are the means by which God has designed to produce life within us. By the Spirit, putting to death sin. So how do we do this? How do we mortify? How do we crucify? How do we kill sin? How do we violently attack our sin? Well, the first way is we use Paul's language here. We set our minds. Look back up in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. To set our minds is what quickens our resolve to pursue holiness. By setting our minds, we're adjusting the rudder of the ship so that we're headed in the right direction. So what do we set our minds upon? Well, first, we set our minds on the gospel. If we don't begin what's true about us in the gospel, we're doomed from the beginning. If Paul gives us Romans 8.13 without giving us Romans 8.1 and 2, then we're doomed from the start. But because we have been rescued from the penalty of sin and we are being saved from the power of sin, one day to be removed from the presence of sin because of Christ Jesus, we can fight sin now. So we dwell on the gospel. Secondly, we set our minds on the danger of sin. And this is also true in the gospel as well because when we look at the picture of the gospel, we look at the mode by which we are saved. And that's Christ's death on the cross. This is the chief signal to us of the danger that sin poses. Because of our sin, Christ was put to death. Paul wants to make the stakes abundantly clear. This is a life and death reality. If we are marked by our obedience to the flesh, if we live a life of not turning away from sin, of unrepentance, then we have no assurance that we belong to Christ. We have no assurance that we have the Spirit of God, and we have no assurance that we'll be united with our Father forever. Now, Paul is not using this language as a scare tactic, but he's wanting to clear our minds to the sobering reality of sin. 
So we dwell on the gospel, we dwell on the danger of sin, and we dwell on eternity. In one of his last sermons before he died, the Puritan Thomas Watson spoke these words to his congregation. And I can't sum it up any better than this. Every day, spend some thoughts upon eternity. The serious thoughts of an eternal condition would be a great means to produce holiness. The thoughts of eternity would make us very serious about our souls. How serious would this make us about our heaven-born souls? Oh, how frequently would that man pray that thinks he is praying for eternity? Oh, how accurately and circumspectly would that man live that thinks upon this moment hangs eternity? So we set our minds on the gospel, we set our minds on the danger of sin, we set our minds on eternity, and we set our minds on our Father. This leads us into our next section, the love of the Father. Now, as we said earlier, our family determines a lot about us, and I would imagine that most of us would confess that we're like our parents in some way. It's not as though we get a choice in the matter, right? I mean, I can think of times where I've responded to a situation and then Katie has pointed out to me, that's just like your dad would respond. Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. But this is also one of the realities that we see in the New Testament. Paul has already made the claim that we inherit sin from our father, Adam. And Jesus lays this reality out really clearly to the, uh, to the religious leaders. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, before you go home asking, did this guy just call me a spawn of Satan? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Sons of God. Children of God. I think we need to pause here for just a moment. Like I said, we've been trekking through this book for six months. And up to this point, the language that Paul has used has been very judicial, it's been very technical, and maybe sounds like a law brief in some cases. But then we come to this type of language, very familial, intimate language, the language of children, of adoption, of sons, of Abba, of father. And what Paul has made clear to us is the order of things. If the legal obligations of the gospel are not met, the familial relationships can't be enjoyed. If we still owe a debt to God, then we have no hope of calling God our Father. 
If our sin is still a barrier between us and the Lord, then we have no right to have access to him as a father. All we have right to access to him is as our judge. But because the legal obligations of the gospel have been met, we can call God our father and he can call us his children. And the whole reason that Paul includes this type of language in this section is to outline that our war against sin is not of, as an obligation to a master, but it is out of love for our father. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have no fear of retribution, of condemnation for God, because that debt has been settled. But it's not as though God has brought our account to zero to say, you have no debt with me anymore. You have, we have no qualms with each other. We're, we're even. That's not the good news of the gospel. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into, into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In the gospel, God forgives our debts, takes our accounts to zero, and then brings us in as his children. John chapter 1 talks about it in this way, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God has adopted us as sons. And in God's kindness, he has orchestrated our world so that we see pictures of this all over the place. Even the family unit is supposed to be a picture of who God is and what he's like. I mean, we see this as true of marriage, but we also see this true when it comes to adoption. We've got a short video of one of our members who is living this out. <laughs> I am Kayla Voorhees, and I have two precious little kiddos, Liam and Annabelle. They came into my life July 16th, 2017 and uh, we're officially adopted November 16th of 2018. When I was I think a freshman in college um, I was in a, a communications class and in those classes you have to do all the different types of speeches. Someone in that class um, during the persuasive speech time talked about being pro-life and how to be a believer and to be pro-life, it means doing something, not just making a post on Facebook. And so when I was in college and I was in that um, communications class and I heard that speech, it was just um, a time where I said, yes, Lord. Um, and I was confident that that would be in my future. I continued to just feel this burden for um, children that have gone through so much and, and for foster kids in particular. I saw in all of my work that there are so many children created in God's image and for His glory 
who people avoid because they're scared of for one thing or another, either the abuse that they've suffered or um, the fear of what accusation could occur or for their own children. So I just thought I would foster hard to place kiddos. Um, enter Liam and Annabelle. They were no longer gonna be able to be in the home that they were in um, and they were headed for the uh, shelter. But there was the knowledge on the horizon that they would go to family. And so I took Liam and Annabelle with the complete plan of being utterly poured out and broken for them. I knew that they were going to family. I knew that I would become attached and therefore scarred for life. <laughs> and I knew it was worth it because that's what the Lord has done for me. And I'm a grown-up who is forever, eternally attached to the creator of this universe, my Lord and Savior, because He cared for me when I was His enemy. And He gave Himself for me when I was not just some kid, but I was absolutely hateful towards Him. He died for me. We'll have a longer version of Kayla's story go on later this week, and please go and watch it and be encouraged by the beautiful picture of the gospel that is being displayed through the Voorhees. And don't use the video as an excuse not to get to know them, okay? This isn't an outlet to say, all right, I've seen the video, now I know the Voorhees. But no, this is an introduction into their life. And we have other families within our congregation that are practicing this so well, the flats being one of them. So please get to know these families, surround them, love them, and see the picture that the Lord wants us to see through these adoptions. Now, a side note here. Our passage this morning is not what gives us a command to pursue adoption. We want to be clear, though. That the scriptures do command us to care for orphans. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We are called to care for orphans because that's what our Father has done. Maybe for you that is adoption. Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's getting licensed to do respite care for a foster family. Maybe it's coming alongside a foster or an adoptive family and asking, how can I serve you? If you're unsure where to begin, go talk to one of our families who has walked down this road. Talk to Kayla, talk to the flats, get to know them as members. Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's with a prayer similar to this. Father, thank you for adopting me. How do you want me to emulate you in caring for orphans? I believe that if we as Southside begin praying this prayer with regularity, we will see doors open. We will see ways in which we can be a picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. So how does this idea of adoption connect with our fight of sin, right? Things started off really harsh in putting sin to death, and now we're talking about fluffy things about the father adopting us as children. What's the connection here? Well, our cruciform life, our life of dying to self, of fighting tooth and nail to not let sin get a foothold, our ever-present struggle against our old man is not motivated by fear, it's motivated by love. See, verse 15, we don't cry, Abba, Father, 
when we fear retribution. We cry out, Abba, Father, to someone we know who will respond with love, with care, and with protection. J.I. Packer puts it this way, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. As many of you know, Katie and I adopted Graham And at five days old, Graham was surrendered to an orphanage where he spent the next two years of his life. Now, the people at the orphanage cared for Graham. They made sure he was clothed, he was fed, he received medical care. But Graham was lacking something, mom and dad. So when we brought Graham home, if he was hurt, if he was angry, if he was scared, he would run away and try to create distance. And it broke our hearts. And he had to be taught what most biological kids know instinctively, that when you're hurt, when you're angry and you're scared, mom and dad are there. They are here to care, to love, to hold and protect you. And you know, it was a great joy that day when that clicked in Graham's mind. When he understood that when I skin my knee, mom is there to kiss it. When I'm scared, dad's there to hold me. In much the same way, we need to be constantly reminded that our Father is present. And he will not forsake us. That he calls us to do hard things, of putting sin to death, but it's because he loves us and he wants something better for us. So when we cry, Abba, Father, he hears. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God in his kindness gives us confirmation of our adoption. God wants his children to be aware that he is their father. If we have uncertainty on whether God is our father, then we will not cry out to him and hope that he will hear. But God gives us his spirit. And not just access to his spirit, he puts his spirit within us so that we would know we belong to him. And so the cry of Abba Father that we see in verse 15 is less of an emotional yelp and more of a confident claim. Abba, Father. And this type of confidence is given by the spirit of the Father. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And in the context, he says, and if children, but notice what he has said about these children, that they are adopted. If adopted children, then heirs. You see what Paul's doing here? He's signaling to us that as an adopted child, we are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. How easy is the temptation of an adopted child to feel as though they're the black sheep of the family? To feel as though they were plan B of the family. I mean, even, even in some of the language that we use, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is language that I have heard at all here at Southside, but I have heard it before. If you can't have kids, we'll adopt. 
as though we're saying, here is an alternative way of having children. Well, if you can't do it the proper way, well, here's a close second. But what Paul is showing us is that in the kingdom of God, apart from his eternal son, all of his children are adopted. And all of them have the right of an heir. This is God's plan A for his family. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us as his adopted children in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Plan A for God's family. Notice this last part, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've got another condition, but again, this condition is not cause and effect, it's means to an end. In order that is the key phrase here. Now we'll spend the next couple weeks exploring the idea of suffering a little more closely, but notice what he's doing here. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's mean by producing what he requires within us, this refiner's fire of burning the dross, preserving the gold. And this is true of any adoption story. When an adoption takes place, the pain, the difficulty, and the struggle doesn't magically disappear. As shocking as it may seem, when Graham walked in my household, his life didn't become bliss. But now, as his father, I'm there for him when he walks through pain. I'm there for him to discipline him when he walks in sin because I want something better for him. How much more does our heavenly father love us? To comfort us in our affliction, to discipline us in our sin because he has something better for us in mind. A good father doesn't leave his children where they're at. He raises them and nurtures them and cares for them so they would go in the direction that he wants. And I think Galatians sums this up really clearly, so we'll end with this. Galatians 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God.